And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for joining us on The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsag with CFA Institute. And today our guest is Dean Albro, head of ESG at Old Mutual Alternative Investments. Dean, it's good to see you again. Matt, hi. Good to see you again. Thanks very much for having me. Not a problem. Dean is joining us from South Africa. We met last year. We're, we're doing a project together on um, a case study for our climate change report. And Dean was talking about private markets and climate change and ESG issues. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into any of that, Dean, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got here. Sure. So I'm a scientist by training and background. I majored in um, zoology, life sciences, environmental science through my university days and ended up most of my career being an environmental consultant, working on various aspects of environmental social management through that career. And I think very, very fortunate to work for a, a global uh, consulting company, environmental resources management, which is really a fantastic training ground for myself and my career. Got to meet some amazing people, very experienced people in different sectors. I was able to gain experience across multiple different sectors, which is proven extremely useful later on in my career. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I'd, I'd always been interested in finance. In fact, leaving varsity, I, I had even picked up financial courses. Um, and I'd always had this dual interest in finance. And more than 10 years ago, ESG wasn't really a thing in finance yet. But in 20, about 2012, I started to decide, well, I wanted to make a move back into finance and you know see what I could do there. And in 2015, I made a shift into a private equity infrastructure investor management firm called African Infrastructure Investment Managers, part of the Old Mutual Group, and really started to cut my teeth as an ESG professional in the finance space from that point onwards, built up the practice in that fund manager, and then moved more broadly in the Old Mutual Group to now lead the ESG team across old mutual alternative investments. And obviously as ESG has become more topical, you know, there's, there's more expectations around it as clients have demanded more and more deliverables around it so that ESG team has grown in the old mutual world. Just curious, how big is that team now? So currently we are four full-time ESG professionals and we see that expanding in the very near future. The business is also expanding. So you know, we're adding on additional fund managers as well, you know, currently. So that just adds bandwidth and, and requirement. So I think, you know, what we're seeing is, yes, foundation of an ESG practice can be what I would call ESG generalists. In other words, people who can span the wide variety of sustainability topics. But, you know, one is also starting to require deep specialist skills. So, you know, one's looking to decide 
Are you just outsourcing that or are you bringing that into your ESG team? So right. I think that's going to start to mold our team going forward. All right, Dean. Now we're going to we're going to get into the, the kind of quiz show uh, part of the part of the program that just started recently where I, I, I see if I can answer the, the fact or uh, number you're thinking of uh, about uh, an issue in ESG. So with some trepidation, I ask you, do you have, you know, a fact or uh, or number for me to see if I can I can answer this question? OK, Matt, I have a question. OK. And it's something that I've been reminded of as I've been doing some recent work and looking back at some of, you know, past presentations around the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. So the question is, for the world to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030, right. is that solely dependent and 100% correlated to economic growth and GDP? Oh, I like this. This is a yes or no question. I, I can I can flip a coin on this one. <laughs> the The way you asked it makes me think the answer is no. It's not it's not fully dependent on GDP. But I'm curious as to why. Yeah. So Michael Green uh, runs a wait. Uh, wait was I, am I am I right? Or, or you you are right. Okay. Go ahead. You are right. All right. Um, I should have phrased it more ambiguously, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate um, I appreciate the easy question. Thank you. <laughs> so Michael Green, he, he, he runs an organization which has um, put out what's called the, the, the Social Progress Index, um, right. where it basically maps out, you know, how much social progress countries in the world are making. And in 2015, when the UN Sustainable Development Goals first came out and were announced, they applied that framework you know, really the interesting piece of work there was they crunched some some really complicated numbers to show that, yes, initially, economic growth in GDP is, you know, very important to increasing the social progress or standard of living of a country. However, the richer countries became, the less impact uh, GDP growth had on that standard of living. In other words, it's, you know, law of diminishing returns. That's right. Yeah. And there were some countries that had relatively lower GDP, yet relatively higher than expected standard of living. Right. And so what were those countries doing to achieve that? And that's where, you know, we need to look for lessons of how we're going to reach uh, the UN SDGs by 2030, just to see what they're doing. Or what they're not doing, maybe is more important. Yeah, that, so, no, yeah, no, that's very interesting because I've been reading a lot about that very issue lately, uh, and, and we're recording this in late June, and and I'm actually talking to someone later today, and I we don't know which podcast is going to go first, yours or his, about the issue of degrowth and and the decoupling of, uh, not decoupling, that's not, not the right word, but thinking about rethinking uh, GDP growth. And, you know, what you just said is that at, that after a certain point, there's diminishing returns uh, to GDP growth. And it's actually detrimental in some cases because, of course, GDP growth, you know, some of the GDP just is a very blunt instrument. It just measures what is sold in an economy. Uh, and it doesn't take into account, you know, pollution and greenhouse gases. And, uh, you know, ex the example I give is, you know, uh, 
a, a billion dollars worth of cigarettes is sold, well, that's a billion dollars towards GDP. But of course, there's health implications of that as well that isn't factored into GDP. And so it's the discussion of, well, you know, what metric should we be focusing other than GDP to measure, you know, the well-being of an economy and a society? And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more of that uh, in the coming years. Yeah, I think so, Matt. And I think, you know, the reason why it's so, you know, such a, a pertinent topic, uh, especially for someone like myself, who's in the financial sector, is there's a huge expectation globally of the private financial sector to, you know, create a shift in terms of climate change and sustainable development goals and to reach all these things. But, you know, we, we are talking about an industry filled with people who have been trained to see everything from an economic perspective, first and foremost. And so it just reminded me of, you know, such a fundamental element of of achieving these um, sustainable goals, you know, isn't actually dependent on that. So I agree with you. I think it's a topic that's going to, as as we find it challenging to reach these goals, I think it's a topic that's going to, you know, rear its head more and more. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, and, and and we can, if we have time, we can circle back to some of that later on in the conversation. Uh, but let's to, to keep kind of framing the, the issue, you know, one of the reasons I want to have you on is because we haven't talked yet on the podcast about, you know, private markets and what, what's going on in private markets around climate, around sustainability. And that's, of course, exactly where you sit. So can you tell us kind of where we've been, where we are and where we're going, uh, integrating sustainability and climate into, into private markets, private investment? Yeah, sure. So I'll start off quite high level. I think if we look at the history of ESG, you know, really the early days uh, were dominated in the listed space, you know, the public markets. And I think that was mainly driven because there was access to, to, to data, access to some level of ESG information that academics could get hold of and start to formulate ideas and frameworks and thinking around what ESG could look like. Mm-hmm. I think as, you know, we've progressed what the private markets have realized, in fact, is actually access to data and information is far more direct and easily obtainable mm-hmm. directly in a private market setting. So there are limitations to the public markets right. around data. So private markets uh, investments are very well positioned, actually, from an ESG and sustainability perspective. It's not saying that you know gaining information is easy, but it is there to be obtained. And I think we've seen essentially from a geographic perspective in the private markets, uh, Europe has taken the lead around ESG and they have for quite a while. The Scandinavian and and Nordic regions really still holding that kind of lead position in ESG, I would say. Um, And, you know, where I am based in South Africa and Southern Africa, because of foreign investment, the ESG kind of roadmap and trajectory has followed, you know, a little bit behind, but not too far behind Europe, in fact, um, as as limited partners in investment vehicles have demanded, you know, high ESG standards. And likewise, you know, the US is also kind of, I would say, sitting just behind Europe as well, um, really gaining a lot of traction very quickly. Um, so that's, that's my own personal engagement globally around ESG and you know, 
who's kind of leading the pack at the moment. Mm. And I think from, you know, the way I see ESG and sustainability is two sides of a coin. So you've got the negative side, which is all about managing negative impact. So it's risk management. And then you've got the positive impact side, which is now commonly just termed impact, mm. which has become, you know, the buzzword everywhere and used everywhere. And really the risk, the risk management side is, is essentially a given. In other words, as a private markets investor, risk management is just expected as a given to meet international standards. So, you know, you really can't take on capital to manage if you're not meeting basic international standards around risk management. So that's almost a given. And a lot of ESG integration that you would see into uh, investment processes were really solely based on risk management, that's right. risk yeah, view, yeah. and that is shifting now. So I think you know the leading players and larger players in the private markets are all shifting into this impact space. So now they've realised, okay, risk management's a given. We've bedded that down. That's our foundation, and now we're really looking to see you know what we can um, do in terms of positive impact, and this is growing new kinds of frameworks. How does one measure positive impact? Uh, where is it appropriate? And, you know, we can get into kind of the space of greenwashing as well, which obviously is a negative outcome of all of this. But, you know, I think we see it as you need a balance. So balance the, the risk management and the positive impact work as well. Um, and I think that's that's where we're kind of heading. I mean, the international frameworks for risk management are well established. Those have been around for quite a while and, and, and have been road tested extensively. I think what we've seen in the last few years is um, the positive impact frameworks are going through that same kind of iteration mm -hmm. of being road tested and used and refined. And there have been some really good improvements over the last year and a half, I would say, that we've seen come through. So that's very, very, you know, that's very positive. Sorry, let me interrupt for a second. What are some of those frameworks people should be uh, looking for, looking to, just just so, you know, they, so after this they can go test drive them themselves? <laughs> yeah, sure. So on the risk management side, the kind of, uh, in the private markets, the typical stack of standards, as I call them, would be equator principles, mm -hmm. uh, United Nations principles, responsible investment, um, the, the International Finance Corporation performance standards, right. as well as environmental health and safety guidelines, United Nations um, guidelines for human rights and business. I mean, that's your, and then the International Labour Organization. So those right. would be your basic, you know, risk management stack. And then your positive impact frameworks include the Impact Management Project, um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. There's also a UN SDG impact framework. Then there's the operating principles for impact management. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's your typical stack of uh, positive impact frameworks one should be looking at. And I think the most exciting thing that's happened in the last couple of months is the real traction around standardization of ESG metrics and reporting. So up to this point, there's been a, you know, a uh, a bit of an alphabet soup of ESG metrics and frameworks to use. And that's really 
very quickly becoming consolidated. Yeah. So last yeah. year, a lot of the key standard setters came together in collaboration. And really, the, you know, IFRS has, has, has taken the lead on this and um, has now established the International Standards Sustainability Board, right. which, you know, hopefully the idea here is that that brings out, um, you know, standards that are global, that everyone can follow, that we're following the same basic metrics and that data can then be shared between, you know, different participants in the financial system. That's great. There was even a couple in there that were, that were new to me. Let's walk through a little bit about, you know, how to, how do you know, and, and this is kind of walking through the case study you guys did for us last year. How do you integrate climate and more broadly, you know, sustainability into, uh, you know, private investments in your analysis? Yeah, sure. I'll try to keep this as succinct as I can. So generally integrating sustainability and ESG type information to the investment process is done through what we would call an environmental social management system, an ESMS. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love our acronyms. <laughs> and um, the one thing I always kind of start off when I talk about this aspect is that it is not a separate system. And that's quite important. It's, right. you know, it gets packaged from a documentation perspective as a separate system to show that it's there. But you know, really from an investment perspective, it needs to be seen as and treated as fully baked in right. to fully your investment yeah. process. No different as you would bake in tax or legal aspects when you're looking at managing investments. That system, those touch points through your investment cycle basically map where through the investment cycle ESG needs to become integrated and how. And so right from an early screening stage, moving through a due diligence, then through the actual legal transaction into active asset management, and then finally to your exit stage of an investment. And that's the typical private markets investment cycle. And so that system then is the landing point for all of the ESG aspects you want to grapple with. So at each stage of your investment, it's about understanding what information you need to be seeing at each stage of your investment to um, to make the right decision at that particular point in time. Mm-hmm. And so all of the risk management side of ESG as well as the positive impact side can be included in that ESMS, in that process. Um, and you know, happy to go into more detail on that if there's need, but then from a climate specific perspective, it's no different. So. You know, one wants to tackle climate risk, and so that includes physical risk, right. and that includes transition risk. And when we talk about physical risk, it's either acute risk, so that's future, um, you know, climatic events that can have financial consequences to your investments, or it's chronic. In other words, a slow-moving change, for example, temperature rise, that can have a financial consequence to your investment. And transition risk, we're really talking about the transition of an economy. So as economies move to a lower carbon economy, what changes are going to take place in that economy? And your investment, whatever it may be, is it at risk in that future state of the economy? And how do you understand that? So one can use ways to assess that and then include it into the ESMS process for each investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you're really looking at all the risks and positive outcomes you can gain 
from an investment um, through the ESMS. From a climate perspective, in the risk side, what we've done up to this point is about two and a half, three years ago, we, look, we started looking at it. And really at that stage, there weren't many vendors out there in the markets that could tackle climate risk assessments for the African jurisdiction mm. and private markets. Mm. There you know, wasn't a lot of data available at the time. So we actually started looking at some open source uh, data sets to pull together and slowly those have improved. So currently at the moment for physical risk, we predominantly use the Climate Impact Explorer, which is an online free open source set of, of data tools that can be used. It's governed by the NGFS. And then for transition risk, we use the scenarios that are run by the NGFS and they include, you know, essentially the current policies type scenario. In other words, if we did nothing, what right. would our economy right. look like? Right. Or if there was a change, would you be going through a orderly change over time? Or would we be going through a disorderly, more chaotic change over time? So those scenarios are there and can be used as well. So that's currently what we are using right now in our investment processes. Additionally, and I would say, you know, the point that that gets us to is being able to undertake what I would call a vulnerability assessment. Mm -hmm. So if one is implementing the TCFD framework, which is the task force for climate, you know, climate related financial disclosures, which is the international framework for climate risk, which most private market players are using. Right. It really is an excellent framework. The end goal of that framework really is to come up with a financial valuation of your climate risk. Now that's easy to say, very difficult to actually do. Right. You know, so we're dealing with future scenarios with certain levels of uncertainty, and now we're trying to, you know, undertake essentially a financial valuation on those parameters. So, you know, quite quite challenging and complex to actually achieve. Where we are at at the moment with those open source, you know, data sets is that we can get to what I call a vulnerability assessment. So we can we can understand our market exposure to these risks mm -hmm. and where mm -hmm. we're vulnerable. What we can't do is we can't actually run a financial valuation off of those platforms. And so that's the piece of work that we're currently doing right now uh, in all mutual alternative investments is how do we best solve for the, the financial valuation part. So we are looking around in the market again um, for vendors, you know, that I think over the years have progressed further in terms of cl general climate risk assessment and, you know, can offer specialist models around physical risk and transition risk. That's great. That's, uh, and thanks for those resources that I'm sure will, I'm sure will be helpful for, for our, our listeners. And I, I had not heard of those. Those are new to me. There's one, I would add it does a little bit different different thing as I've come across uh, recently is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with En-ROADS, it's en-roads, it's either .com or .org, uh, but you can, you, know, you, you can find it. It's folks from uh, MIT have put it together. And it's more looking at the issue of climate and if you can, you can put in different things that happen, such as carbon capture and storage is enhanced or electric vehicles become 50% of the global fleet by 2035, 
or there's a carbon tax globally of $100 or $200 or whatever it is. You can put in all these different inputs and you see what it does to the climate curve. And so you see, you know, after playing with this for a while, you see, you know, what works, what has a bigger impact and what has a smaller impact. And so I'm just trying to throw that out there as a, as a resource for people. And the ones you told us about, I will be test driving those myself. But anytime we can give people more information and more resources, uh, I think that's a good thing. So thank you for that. And, and Matt, maybe just the last you know, point that is useful, I think maybe for, for listeners, that, that the timeline is really an, actually a key aspect around this um, in terms of your investment horizon. You know, that's right. What, what, what you see is that the tools look great and the forecasts look great and they're all pushing out to about 2050. The reality is, you know, as an investor, when you're practically using this information, what you realize is you very quickly get into this issue of a time horizon on your own investment, yeah. which might only be five or six years into the future. And, you know, five or six years, there's relatively, for most investments, quite low climate risks. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there is a danger generally for all of us, you know, in that, you know, we, we, how do we, within the culture of investing, continue to push a long-term view of custodianship? Because even the tools and the data, if you put a hard kind of timeline on it for your own personal investments, I think you, you realize, well, you're still dealing in a space of relatively low risk. And what that does, if everyone takes that view and is making decisions on that basis purely, what it actually does is it pushes us into what the NGFS call the disorderly scenario, the disorderly transition scenario. In other words, we, you know, we, we don't take any real action before 2030. We start incurring major physical climate risk until a point where we realize, oh, oh goodness, we've got a serious problem. And then suddenly there's a dramatic shift required. So, you know, these are some of the things we're grappling with uh, in the investment space ourselves. Yeah. And that's, that's a uh, that's a great point, and one that it often comes up in, in, on this podcast and these conversations, is that, and I think steward is a great word you, that you used. We have to be great, better stewards of our our profession, uh, and the planet, and realize that you know that five and six year time horizon. Yes, okay, that's okay, for the investment, the analysis you're doing now, for the investment you're doing now. But you have to realize that starting tomorrow or starting three years down the road or four years down the road or five years down the road, you're going to be making investments with a five to six year time horizon again. And you can't spoil the market, so to speak, by not acting on those longer term issues because that eventually is going to become your time horizon. And the longer we wait to do things about that, the more challenging that's going to become. And so it, it behooves us to think, think as longer term stewards because that investment horizon is going to be here sooner than we think. Exactly right. All right. Well, I, well thanks for, for all that, uh, that conversation. Again, there were some great resources that I hope our, our listeners can use. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about what's going on in South Africa in particular, in Africa in general, and sustainability, ESG, climate, that our listeners, investors should know more about. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um... I think, you know, from a continental perspective, I think there's still a recognition generally, you know, that all kind of countries in Africa are, are emerging markets. They're still needing to develop. 
there still is a huge requirement to to grow their economies in the best way possible. And if you look at global emissions, Africa certainly, you know, is on the lower end. Right. You know, there's different data sets you can see, and they have slightly different numbers. But uh, one of the more, let's take a conservative view, a conservative view I've seen recently was, you know, Africa is responsible for 11 to 15% at the most of greenhouse gas emissions globally. So, right. for a, you know, for a huge part of the world, it's actually responsible for very little of climate change that we're seeing, and at the same time really needs to develop. So there's, sentiment is very strong in African countries when we talk about climate change and climate action. And it's a, an issue that will come up immediately mm-hmm. with people from other parts of the, of the globe. But that's not to say that there isn't work to be done and we shouldn't be shifting things. So, you know, what is the big conversation in South Africa as well as uh, other parts of the continent is around transition. And what can that look like? What's and, and what they immediately tends into. So when we talk about transition for you know, for listeners who are not familiar with it, we're really talking about the energy mix. So it's around the you know the, the power infrastructure and you know the way power is is delivered in a certain country. Mm-hmm. A lot of countries are still highly dependent on coal or heavy fuel oil or diesel. Right. As, as their power source, and that really, you know, dominates their greenhouse gas footprint. So, how do we move these countries off of that? And South Africa is a, an obviously prime example, and in fact, a bit of an anomaly on the continent in this regard. You know, I think num- at the moment it sits as number twelve uh, highest emitters on a per country basis uh, of greenhouse gases globally. So, that's likely co- coal, right? Correct, absolutely. So the grid in South Africa really is is largely coal-based. And the real conversation around climate change in Africa tends to immediately get into energy, the energy sector, because from a continental perspective, and includes South Africa, there's such a power deficit, you know, so the huge groups of, of people that still do not have power, you know, and, and require more power, and yet it's coming off quite a high fossil fuel base, that power infrastructure. So how do we transition that? How do we, how do we get those, those energy mixes towards more renewables and away from the fossil fuels? And the reality is, is from a technical basis, it's not as easy as just flicking a switch and everyone moves on to renewables. Uh, you know, I, I think we all wish it was. It, a lot of it depends on the kind of grid infrastructure that's sitting in a country, you know, how advanced that grid is as to what kind of energy sources it can balance, you know, from a load perspective and, you know, what kind of constant power supply that grid requires to, to remain stable mm-hmm. uh, is also important. You know, if, if one can't balance out renewables input onto the grid effectively or well enough to keep the stability then one needs another fuel source to maintain that stability. And historically, that's been fossil fuel based. So, you know, I think there's an absolute recognition, you know, the jurisdictions we're operating in where we need a transition of the energy mixes and how are we going to do that? So in South Africa, for example, the renewables program is going well. We're rolling out, you know, around six of now renewables for South Africa. The cost of renewables in South Africa has come down dramatically, you know, since its inception. 
you know, it, it, it is now, you know, on a, on a megawatt basis for new developments, you know, in the realm of the cheapest power, you know, one can procure. So, you know, that, those are all great outcomes, but it doesn't mean from an overall perspective, it's the silver bullet. So one still needs this transition. And I, you know, to add into this, what we've seen coming out of the global kind of trends is the EU taxonomy. And that's, that's been used a lot as a green taxonomy that's going to determine a lot of financial flows into the continent from, from Europe. And there's a huge debate about whether gas and nuclear go into that taxonomy or are left out. At the moment, you know, recently two major councils, decision councils voted against a proposed addendum to the taxonomy, which would allow nuclear and gas in there. So it looks like it may not actually get in there. That means there's a whole lot of financial capital coming from Europe into the continent, which may not be able to back, for example, gas as a solution, which has quite quite huge implications from an investment perspective into the energy transition. So that's a lot of the conversation that's happening. South Africa, we have to decarbonize the grid as fast as possible. You know, this is a grid that should have been decarbonizing, you know, in previous years already and to move away from coal. The, the challenge that we mustn't underplay or be insensitive to is that there's obviously a huge historical workforce and many communities and families dependent on the coal value chain in South Africa. There are whole towns that have been built up around the coal value chain in South Africa. And how do we transition without leaving those people behind? And the analogy that I like to use, and it's one that this is, you know, that I find concerning is when the Industrial Revolution came about. No one went to the blacksmith and said, you know, how can we help you transition into the industrial revolution? It just happened, you know, and it happened relatively quickly and the world changed. If you didn't change with it, you were left behind. And when the information age came, no one went to businesses solely running with typewriters and said, you need to get onto a desktop computer. Uh, It just happened. If those businesses didn't pick it up themselves and move with the times, they got left behind. And so I think, you know, what my concern is that this change is happening already. This is not a future change that is going to happen to South Africa. It is going to happen. And so, you know, the onus is on us as a country to really make sure that we don't leave people behind in the change. We're not going to stop the change. That's a great point. And there's, uh, I mean, the issue that you mentioned is, uh, just just transition is is the is what is the words I hear for it. And I would point people to I've seen a little bit of legislation that's come out of places like Spain and Germany about exactly that issue. You know you have all these coal co-workers who have been doing this for generations. And what is the transition? How do we make that just? And it's, it's an issue that's you know that's happening here in the states. It's going to be in India and China and other places as well perhaps as a podcast uh, for another time as well, all by itself. But I would encourage people to look up, you know, look into Just Transition uh, to find more more about that issue in particular. All right, before we let you go, our, our listeners know that you're you're about to give them a, a little homework. We've already, thankfully, put, put out a, a lot of resources in this podcast that I think people will be helpful to people. But is there anything else 
uh, you want to tell people that uh, they should be reading, should be listening, to, be, should be watching to learn more about, you know, sustainability in general or you know, private markets in particular? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, an interesting space right now is, you know, very topical. And so there's a lot of media around it. You know, that's the, the net zero space and, and what does that actually mean and lots of net zero commitments being made. I think what's going to be really interesting is how the science-based targets, uh, so they've released now net zero guidance documents, right. you know, and I think that's going to be, that's the kind of aspects I'm reading at the moment is how are those linking in well and, you know, how are we going to hold each other accountable for the decarbonization commitments that have been made I think for financial institutions, it's one thing making these long-term commitments of 2050 of decarbonization. You know, what's going to be interesting to see is from a calculation perspective, how, how are we holding each other accountable along the road? It does link back to what I mentioned earlier around the time horizon of investment. So, you know, discussing with a, a client of ours recently, talking around net zero and these long-term commitments, it was saying, you know, yes, they, they're great. Uh, and and long-term ideas around decarbonization is great. But if we're going to hold an asset for five years, what really matters is what is the decarbonization plan we drive in five years? Mm -hmm. That's what matters. And science-based targets is a great resource to use to, to help do that and to understand what that should look like if you actually are trying to hit a net zero or a 1.5 degree world outcome by 2050. And then linked to that, I would say what's going to be very interesting as well, uh, which I'm also reading up on engaging, you know, various players on is the legal aspects around carbon credits and offsets and who is the right to own those. And what I mean by that is if you look at the private market space, Typically, you have what we would call an asset owner. So that's the organization who provides the capital into a fund. Mm -hmm. Then you have the asset manager, which is where I work. Uh, and then you've got the investee, which is the portfolio company where the capital is deployed into. Mm -hmm. And then you also have debt, debt players that come into the mix. And so when carbon credits are generated out of a portfolio company, if they're doing renewable energy, or some other kind of reduction technology and generate carbon credits in order to balance out this net zero equation, who actually in the financial system can use those carbon credits? And how do we prevent double counting in the system? So yeah, that's an interesting space that I'm you know, delving into now and, and grappling with and uh, an interesting space I think it's gonna play out in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's a podcast. That's a separate podcast I want to have on carbon credits and the whole issue of double counting and the whole issue of who gets to issue them and the audit trail of them. That's a, a great place to a great thing to look uh, to, to look into. And, and I'm sure we'll be doing a podcast on that uh, at some point in the future. Well, Dean, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate your, your insight. It's, uh, it's always great to see you. Thanks again and take care. No, thanks, Matt. Always a pleasure, and uh, hopefully it was useful. Thanks very much. Thank you.